media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 13. It's where we will begin. And those will probably be the most important words that I will say this morning. Because in a, in a topic like politics, there's all kinds of things that we could get into our mindsets and our thoughts and our persuasions. And, and really the most biblical thing I can say to you this morning is open your Bibles and let's get into the Word of God. Let's let it direct us this morning. And uh, many of you know that uh, is my personal conviction not to really preach on politics from the pulpit. And I want you to know that uh, the reason why I believe that, and it's just personal to me, uh, it doesn't have to be your personal conviction, it is my convictions, uh, I do want you to know that it is not out of fear. It is not a fear whatsoever. Uh, I believe strongly in the things that I believe in, and so it's not out of fear, oh man, that's going to upset somebody or something like that. No, there's, let me give you at least three reasons. I probably could give you ten reasons why I don't believe that it's wise for me, why God has convicted me. Not to, uh, to really use this opportunity on Sunday mornings to, to take on, uh, political, you know, waves of thought for the day. Number one, it is usually dividing in nature when we are called to be one in Christ. What separates us is, uh, minor in comparison to what unites us, the finished work of Christ. And yet, you take a hundred Christians and you may get as many as a hundred and one different political views from those, because there will be some people, I believe this and I believe this. And so, you know, it's just kind of a confusing thing. Second reason is it's really fully hard, or hard to fully communicate the nuances and the complexities of uh, issues in what is essentially a one-way conversation. <laughs> I'd much rather have a discussion with you. I'd much rather us be able to sit down. That's why if you look on the bulletin, there is something that maybe you haven't seen before. Um, Bobby at cornerstone.org. Because I really do. I mean, I, I this is not passive-aggressive. This isn't, okay, you can write me this way. Guys, this is a one-way conversation. I, I get to speak for the next 40 minutes. And, and unless you kind of interrupt, you really don't get a response to that. Maybe afterwards you can come up and say something. So this is not the best way that we can discuss things that are really pretty complex. The third reason is because it, usually when we discuss politics, it focuses on the temporary and the things of man. The temporary instead of the eternal, and the things of man instead of the things of God. I'm not saying that politics do not kind of blend into the things of God. We will certainly see that this morning. Probably the last reason is because the gospel is a much more compelling truth. If I have something to share with you today, it is not a, a regurgitation of whatever news you want and you listen to during the week. I want to give you the hope of the gospel. And I don't know that I heard that on any of the news stations this week, whether they would be aligned with the left or the right or somewhere else. I didn't hear a lot of the hope of the gospel. And what do I need this Sunday morning as I come together with my family in Christ? I need the hope of the gospel. So these are reasons why I, it's my own personal convictions. I don't even to uh, extend that to the, the, the elders of our church or to any other pastor. This is just what God has laid upon my heart. Now, having said that, today I will gladly speak about Jesus and what he said about politics. Why? Because it's the next text. This is the beauty of expository preaching. That we get to preach and then we can't avoid those things like, oh, I don't know that I really want to go there. 
No, we go there because the text goes there. We go there because Jesus went there. One of the most fascinating things to me about this whole idea of um, politics and how God has given us such deep, passionate thoughts. I mean, we saw that even at the Southern Baptist Convention this week, that uh, last month in, in, in June or, or earlier in June, that there was division. It was a really kind of one of the highly political ones. Why? Because there were some political issues. And we see even people that love Jesus Christ and affirm Christ in their life having very different views, very wide range of views. And, and you've probably experienced that too. In fact, I would challenge you with this. The last several elections, I, I've seen people on both sides of what we could say the political spectrum say this and say it authentically, not say it in a snide way, even though it can come off snide if we're, if our heart's not checked, but say it in a very authentic way. Have you ever heard or have you said, how could anyone who truly loved Jesus and believes in God vote for fill in the blank? Have we not heard that the last several elections? And people who are firm believers who truly love God, I mean, are sincere in their faith, have filled in that blank with different names and different agendas and different political views. Now, I, I say that because it fascinates me, guys. It fascinates me that we can have this commonality of Christ, that we can have this foundation of the hope of the gospel, and yet... There seems to be this freedom to have different ways to live our lives in a political fashion. And yet, we are the ones that pretty much narrows that. Because if I'm convinced in my mind, how could you ever vote for that guy or that guy or this girl or this girl? That Are you even a Christian? How easy it is in the passions of our beliefs, in the depths of our beliefs, to kind of take on that kind of, man, this is the only way. Now, that may be the only way for you. I'm very convinced about kind of my political persuasions. Well, we can share that individually over coffee. I'll buy, okay? I have no problem discussing my kind of political views on different things. I just don't know, and it fascinates me, that somehow that everybody is going to believe exactly as I believe. And is that okay? Well, I want you to know that that, that intensity of the depths of our passions about our political beliefs is actually what um, causes this whole scene in the life of Christ. We're, we're passionate, we're convinced, so much so that it's hard for us to, to imagine that anybody who truly loved God and, and had a conscious thought in their mind could even think differently. Well, that's what the religious and the political leaders of Jesus' day were counting on. They were counting that same deep, deep conviction in our hearts to be in the hearts of the people around Jesus that day. Because they, what they wanted to do is try to trap Jesus. They, they're very clear in that. Uh, and Jesus knows that going into this whole uh, passage. He knows that they're very hypocritical, that they're very much trying to trap him. But they're counting on that deep intensity of passionate political thought. So it's not something new. The Jews, uh, religious leaders and the Pharisees, uh, the politically inclined, the Herodians, they did not like each other. I've covered that many, many times, how these were people that on every other day of the week would be politically, religiously opposed to one another. The Herodians were very much kind of somewhat in support of the Roman government. The Jewish religious leaders were not whatsoever, but they were both Jews. They were all Jews, 
but they just had different kind of visions and uh, thoughts about the role that Rome would play in their lives. And yet they've come together in this. The old saying is, politics makes strange bedfellows, and it really does. And we see this 2,000 years ago. Look what happens, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees. Now, who's the they? That's the Herodians, and that's the Pharisees. They've gotten together. These, these dreaded enemies have gotten together for the common purpose of getting rid of Jesus Christ. And so they send this contingency now out to talk to Jesus, and they are very clear are in their intentions. They know what they're trying to do. And the Bible says that to trap him in his talk. Now, remember the context here. Jesus has disrupted the temple, uh, the money changers. He has turned just a, a lot of the, the uh, uh, things of the religious nature of the Pharisees that were not grounded in Scripture. He's turned those upside down. He certainly has uh, not made a political statement in one way, but he is talking about another kingdom. And you can only imagine that if you're the king of the current kingdom, but you're always wary of somebody who talks about bringing in another kingdom. And even though Jesus was talking about a spiritual kingdom, you know, you can only imagine the upset here. And so they strategize together. These two dreaded enemies come together for one purpose. Let's corner Jesus into an impossible place where he cannot answer. Let's give him a question that he's forced to kind of take aside, left or right. I don't know this to be true. I've never lived in Alabama, but I've heard that when you go to Alabama, that they give you two weeks to decide, Alabama or Auburn. And they kick you out of the state if you don't pick one or the other. And you can say, I don't even follow college football. And they're going, then get out of the state anyway. Okay, you know, we, we, we don't want you here. And it's kind of that situation here. So look what happens in verse 14. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's amazing. Every bit of that is truth. (laughs) And yet they didn't feel that way. And yet here they are just kind of setting this up. And yet every statement that they make about Jesus is true. He speaks truth. He only concerns himself with the things of God. The appearance of man and the approval of man does not really sway him. So he said, they say truth, but they say it in a very snide way. They're just trying to butter him up. In fact, I mean, there's two pounds of butter right there, okay? But now they get to the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? Should we pay them or should we not? Yes or no? Remember back in kindergarten? Do you like me? Yes or no? <laughs> there wasn't a box there for it. You know, I'm kind of ambivalent on that. Uh, you know, I think we should just be friends. You know, there wasn't a, you know, do you like me? Yes or no? They asked this question for the purpose of trapping Jesus, and they ask it in a very yes or no way. They say all these buttery things to Christ, and yet he sees right through them. In their way of thinking, and really in the way of thinking of that day, this question was brilliant. They actually borrowed this strategy from Jesus, remember when he said, John the Baptist, was his ministry of God or was it from man? 
And they couldn't answer. And so he said, so I'm not going to answer you. He kind of put a yes or a no in front of them, and they didn't take a stand. Is that the out that Jesus is going to take? Is he going to go, you know, this is neither a yes or a no. Well, let's look on. Remember, that we're pretty passionate about our political views, and, and any disagreements are usually fighting words. And that's what they're counting on. They asked Jesus if Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. And there was no good answer politically or religiously that wouldn't fire somebody up. If Jesus said, yes, pay your taxes, then the Jewish people, really the religious Jewish people would say, okay, you're breaking spiritual laws here. And we saw you as one that's going to bring freedom. We saw you as a king ready to, to take a, make a new kingdom, and yet now we're, we're bowing down to the Romans again? This is the very reason why we want a king. But the king that they wanted was a political king. It wasn't a spiritual king. We're so much more concerned in 99% about their political freedom and maybe 1% their spiritual freedom. And Jesus says, well, man, I'm about spiritual freedom. If he says no, then they can turn him over to the Roman authorities as an insurrectionist. Either way, they get rid of Jesus. They don't care if he says yes or no. I really don't think that they care if he says yes or no. They just want to trap Jesus and get rid of Jesus. But look what happens next. In the brilliance of their question, look at the response of Christ. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Can you imagine being in that where you have these kind of political leaders? I mean, whenever we try to illustrate biblical times, we're always going to be at a little bit of a fault. But can you show that next picture there? And, you know, here they are, the, the authorities, the top Herodians, the top Pharisees are there, and so they've sent out the you know the top guard, and, and and Jesus, kind of very calmly, very strongly says, "Will you bring me a denarius?" What's interesting here is that he doesn't have a denarius. That's how much his kingdom is of the other world, you know. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. He has to ask for a denarius, and the denarius is really a, it's about the size of a dime. Uh, in fact, can you show that next one? It's, it's, it's very small. We actually still have denarius. I mean, you can go and find a 2,000-year-old denarius um, uh, over there in biblical lands. You, you can buy one for about $1,200. It's kind of amazing you could buy a coin that is so old for about 1200 if you're a, a coin collector. But... But they bring this, and a denarius was basically uh, an average man's day wage. So I don't know what that will equate today, if that would be $100, if that would be $200. I don't know, but that's really what it was. And, and really what the, the, the problem here is that this was the payment that every Jew had to make. And what we would call a poll tax, in fact, I think in Matthew's gospel, he actually calls it a poll tax. You could also call it a head tax. In other words, it was a tax simply because you existed. You were Jewish. This was not the largest tax that they paid. This, this was by far, monetarily, this was not enormous. It was one day's wage. It was the insult that you had to pay 
because you simply existed. It was an affirmation that the Jewish people were under Roman rule. So while it wasn't deep in the pocket, and it wasn't so much offensive in the depth of the pocket that it went to, it's what it stood for. So Jesus says, okay, will you bring me one of those denarius? Will you bring one? And he asked two questions. Notice that he asked not one, but he asked two questions because it's very important here. And we're going we're gonna to stay on, go back to that because I do want to show that picture because there's two sides to this coin. First one, whose likeness is on this coin? And the other one, whose inscription is on this coin? And both of those are really important in the argument that Jesus is about to, to put forth, okay? Now, do you see that there is a face on there? Okay, the face on this particular one, we do believe that this would, uh, there was different denarii, just like we have different nickels, you know, they are inscribed different things, or quarters. We changed every quarter to each state, you know. There would have been different denarii, but more than likely, this was the denarius that was during Jesus' time. And more than likely, this is the one that they brought over to him. And on one side was the picture of Tiberius Caesar Augustus. And he's the son of the divine Augustus. And that's the wording that you see around there. It's his name and this title, son of the divine Augustus. Now, what? who do you usually associate with the word divine? Yeah. Do you think the Romans liked, I mean, do you think the Jewish uh, people liked the Romans calling Caesar, no matter which Caesar was in the line of Caesars, divine? And yet that was the exact thought that the Roman people had, that the, the, the Caesars were God. So on one side, the, this face is there of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, it had uh, Caesar on a throne. And it says the word Pontiff Maxim. Anybody brush up on their Latin? High priest. Wow. It's one thing to call yourself divine, but now you're calling Caesar the high priest? Can you see where this would be offensive to the Jewish people? I mean, this got right... They're breaking commandment number one and commandment number two. And they were forced to do this. You, you couldn't go pay with Jewish money. You had to pay with Roman money. It was a Roman tax. And you paid with Roman coin and to the the Roman government. It's hard for us to really imagine how offensive that was, but believe me, this is why it was such a passionate thing in the lives of the Jewish people. A total reminder of where they were both uh, religiously, they had religious offense and they had political offense against this. And Jesus answers in two parts, and it's because, uh, here's my belief, because we live as Christians in two kingdoms. As a follower of Christ, the Bible tells me that my citizenship is now in heaven. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is where? In heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I'm presently living here. I happen to be an American citizen. I wouldn't say I have dual citizenship. I guess you could kind of use that in a very loose term. But but I, I'm one person, and yet I exist in two different kingdoms, two different citizenships at the same time. And I have responsibility in 
both of these kingdoms. That's what Jesus is going to say. I mean, the Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 13. A lot of people don't like this that Paul wrote, and this is what Paul wrote. Paul wrote in Romans 13.1, inspired of God, so it's not really Paul's words, it's God's word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We could stop right there, and a lot of people would say, I'm out. That we take offense at that. In the same way that the Jewish people took offense that they were under Roman rule. We don't like being ruled, especially if it's an opposing government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Does that mean that God has ordained every single leader that we've ever had in the world, not just in the United States, but every, everywhere in the world? In a way, yes and no. Ordained in the sense that he has allowed it, uh, supported, when we use the word ordain like he supports, and this is his candidate, I, I would say no. He doesn't support the things that some uh, terrible leader does that are against the word of God. But they're only there by God's allowance. Either God is sovereign or he's not. We, we can't play around with that. We can't shade that into shades of gray. Either he is totally sovereign or he's not sovereign. There's a whole bunch of theology here and there's a whole lot of application here. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. I don't like that. And those who resist will incur judgment. While we often think that government is from man, the Bible shows us that God has ordained government to give our world order. Does that mean that he ordains everything that fallen people, leaders do? No. I mean, world leaders have been terrible in the past. I mean, they've been offensive to the things of God. So God's not ordaining that, but he does ordain government. I mean, it really does. Go back to Genesis. Who, who set up government? God did. Why? Because he's the God of order. And, and really, it is to give us order in our lives. But here's the problem. When you have fallen man in a fallen world, <laughs> fallen leaders leading fallen people... Uh, what do you get? Fallen stuff. And so it's far from perfect. But God does ordain government. He established government. And government as an idea of order for the people instead of chaos is actually a biblical idea. Okay? Romans 13, 5 and 6. Therefore, one must be in subjection. We hate that word, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also to the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. We sure hate that. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Wow. How can you say that these authorities are ministers of God? Only because God has allowed them to come in. They're not even doing godly things. Paul's saying a whole bunch here. Friends, I'm not trying to be simplistic on this issue that is quite complex. I just want to be biblical. I just want to be biblical, okay? not trying to make you uneasy. not trying to make you mad. I'm not trying to anger you. I'm not trying to irritate you. I just want to be biblical. And, and you should want that in your lives, even if it's egregious to you. By answering the way that he did, Jesus is trying to show us 
that this is not an either-or situation, but it's a both-and. If you are a Christian this morning, you live in two different kingdoms. You exist two different kingdoms. One is primary, that's the kingdom of God. One is secondary, it just happens to be where you are. One is eternal in nature and true and founded on God. The other one is temporary in nature, but was still founded by God. That's what Paul is saying here. And again, we can have coffee if you want to argue over these things, and, and or if you want to dis- I apologize if you want to discuss these things, because it doesn't have to be an argument. I mean, I, there's parts of it. Uh, is there ever parts of the Bible that you just go, I don't know that I like that, and yet it's either God's word and it's true, or, or somehow we're correcting God. This is what God has said. So what does it mean for us? And how does that relate to Jesus' answer in the question? He doesn't stop by saying, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, period. No, he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render to God that which is God's. What is Jesus doing there? It's really the basic argument that, uh, of, of, that we live in two different kingdoms. Well, one is the primary one. My resident, my citizenship is now in heaven. Peter and John, when they were told not to preach the gospel anymore, don't you say the name of Jesus anymore. And they were thrown in prison because of that. How did they respond? Oh, since there's a law against speaking about Christ, I can't do it. No, they said, no, we are going to continue to preach the gospel. Why? Because we live in two different kingdoms, but this is the superior one. This is the primary one. And so when there is conflict between this world's kingdom and the kingdom of God, we go with God. Okay, So the Bible, when it says to be subject to this, it doesn't say, okay, that we just are these patsies and we just blindly follow along. No, we are to stand against injustice. We are standing against those things that are against the Bible. But, but we are subject to it. Not trying to be simplistic, but, but what did Peter and John say? Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. This is my call. This is my call living in a very confusing world where there's all kinds of thoughts. And just to be accurate there, do you know who their fight was against in Acts chapter 5? Who put them in prison? It wasn't the political leaders. It was the Sanhedrin. It was the Jewish leaders. It's very important for us to kind of understand that even the church, even our religious leaders can really mess up at times. You see, we are created in the image of God, and every man has responsibility in that regard. Even non-Christians have a responsibility to the authority of God and the authority of government. But, but today, we're concerning ourselves, how do we as Christians respond? Biblically speaking, how do we do, are we to live in the light of the reality that, at least for now, that we're living in the middle of two kingdoms? Here's my understanding. When I take the full counsel of God's word, when I take all that he has said or or a lot of what he has said there, I I think 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 really sum it up for me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does that have to do? 
It's that word ambassador. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is a person who's a citizen of another place, but they go and travel and they represent that kingdom in the place where they are right now. And that's why the Bible calls us as Christians. It says you, you are a stranger in this world. This isn't your home. Your home is with me. But what is our role? An ambassador sent from God. For what? If we go back and we read, we don't have time, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for this ministry of reconciliation. Another word for that, the gospel. What, what is your job? What is my job to do living in two different kingdoms, one primary and eternal, one temporary and going to fall away? What, what is our role? To represent God in this kingdom that we actually exist in right now. Ministers of reconciliation carrying with us this ministry of reconciliation. What is that? The gospel. That's why verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, pastor, does that solve every political discussion here on earth? No. But it truly is the hope that we have in this day and time and all the confusion that we have and all the different things. I mean, think about it right now. Just think about how divided our country is and even the people of God. I mean, there's so many hot words out there right now. Critical race theory, mask or no mask. This, I mean, guys, we can go down a laundry list that, that are kind of in our face every single day and people are passionate about those things. And what is our eternal hope? Does the Bible speak to those things? I I would think that in some application it would, and other times I I don't know that it gives us a direct word. When it comes into a situation where we find ourselves at the political kind of pulling this way and that way, can we just go back to the word? Can we go back to the word and say, okay, God, will you give me wisdom to be your ambassador here? I think that the last thing, I mean, I'm, again, we'll have coffee, I'll pot, and you'll find that I have some pretty deep uh, seated political views. <laughs> I'm pretty conservative. <laughs> some would say that I'm ultra conservative. <laughs> Others would call me quite liberal because I would actually ask why a person would believe this and not just take it at face value. I mean, I've experienced the same thing Spiritually. Do you do weddings of somebody who's already been married? Well, depending on the circumstance, and if, if they truly do find their life in Jesus Christ now, and, and this is where they're going, and, and it's not a reactionary thing, and there's this. I mean, you take into all that consideration, and then you make your decision. Well, you're a liberal. I cannot believe that you would do that. No. Actually, pretty conservative. I've told more people no than yes. I don't say that as an example of myself. I say that because this is the world that we live. And the minute I give attention to being called this or that, the minute that you give attention to be calling this or that, instead of living out under the influence and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, folks, we have lost the battle. We've lost the battle. 
We're no longer a slave to fear. If anything, if the Bible calls us to be enslaved in something, it is in Christ Jesus. If we were to be subject to something, yes, here, so you're in subject to the kingdom, the kingdom that you live right now, politically, you're, you're under this authority. Doesn't mean you have to agree with everything, and it certainly doesn't mean that you don't stand for righteousness in the things that, uh, that, that are righteous. Folks, we live in a crazy world. You are, you're more likely to be thrown into jail because you spanked your child. But you can go abort children left and right. This is wrong. This is wrong, guys, that we live in this crazy world. Do we give affirmation to those things and say, oh, because they said that it's okay to have an abortion? No, we stand as light in the darkness. But just understand that we live in this world, and yet we have a calling. We are to be ambassadors. We are to speak truth. We are to live truth. We are to promote truth. We are to pursue truth and do it under the power of a holy God who's called us. Not to run away. My nature, when it comes to political things, my nature would be escapism. Just give me an island. Just give me an island. How many of y'all can relate to that? (laughs) And yet, that's not the biblical call. You're an ambassador. And you don't have to make up what you are to teach. I've given you the message of reconciliation. Preach Christ and the hope of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you and we thank you. Father, in your word, Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wow, that's hard. And yet, Father, I do believe that uh, you fully acknowledge in your word that we are living in two kingdoms simultaneously. And you've even given us a role in this present kingdom. And Father, I thank you that you have entrusted to us. You even said that in your word, that you've entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. I don't know that I would trust myself as an ambassador. And yet, Father, somehow you've entrusted that to me. So, Father, help us to to see that. Father, I thank you for the wisdom of Jesus. What an amazing thing. Father, that he, he doesn't point us to an either or, but he says, this is a both and. Temporarily, this is a both and. You are living in this world. But there's a primary world, a world that will go on forever and ever. And that this is our ultimate call. So, Father, will you give us wisdom in this crazy day of, of political irritation when friendships, families, And even churches are divided because of political persuasions. Father, we don't make light that these are serious things. But Father, I pray that we would make much that we are one in the body of Jesus Christ. So help us, Father. Help us as ambassadors this week to go out and to live for you. To be lights in the darkness to be very wise as serpents and yet as innocent as doves. We love you and we thank you for this calling. Equip us now through your spirit as we pray all this in the hope that is Christ. Amen.
Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.